football games I've ever seen, Paul. Never club won on them. This is the story of a love affair. The story of the Denver Broncos and their days in the American Football League. You can get it done. You can get it done. What's more, you gotta get it done. Somebody from the CIA came to speak to us because they were looking for secretaries, and I actually was accepted to work for the CIA, and had a date to go to Washington, D.C., and a friend of mine called and said, there's a new football team in Boston. And I called the Boston Globe, got the name of the general manager. General Manager Ed McKeever is an old hand at football problems. Anything from getting a new player to flying the team all over the country. And as part of the interview, he put out a piece of paper and put 11 circles on the piece of paper and said, this is the offense of a football team. Name the positions. And I put the tackles next to the center, and the guard should have been next to the center. And I thought, well, that'll be it. Two days later, he called me and said, would you come to work for the Patriots? So I started in June of 1960. Joan Parker's is the voice you may hear when you call Congress to 1776. Our house was set up the way our antenna was turned to ABC and NBC, so I used to have to beg my dad, let's go up on the roof, let's turn the antenna so I can see the CBS Eagles game at the Cardinals or wherever they were. It got to be too much of a chore. And my dad convinced me, just, you know, watch the other channel, ABC. Uh, there's a game on there. Houston now is in the midst of a 40-yard drive. The thing that drew me towards it were people like George Blanda, Billy Cannon. Again at the Cannon. Then it became less important to watch the Eagles. I remember growing up in Annapolis and sitting on the floor, black and white TV, of course. After watching the first game, either the Redskins or the Colts, then the second AFL game would come on. You know, it, it was a way to spend the rest of the Sunday afternoon and a way to postpone homework. At the time when the AFL started, I was like, you know, 22, 23 years old. A lot of guys that were playing were friends of mine. I mean, guys that I played in college with or guys that I played against. That's what the AFL was initially, more opportunities for players to play. And then as I started in coaching, there was more opportunities for coaches to coach. I never forget the first meeting we had in 1960. I said, listen, I do not know how long the American Football League is going to last, but I'm going to guarantee you this. We are going to be the winningest team in the history of the American Football League. Write that down and underline it. The only history book that concerned the founders of the American Football League was the one they were writing. Just keep matriculating the ball down the field, boys. One that offered a perfect reflection of its time. How fitting that it began on a jet ride through dreamy clouds above a fruitful nation in the hand of a humble man not yet 30 who believed the old way was not the only way. You can get it done. What's more, you gotta get it done. His words were quiet and measured. His league was sound and fury. His name was Lamar Hunt. 
this story belongs to all the people whose lives he changed forever. I think probably my mother must have been bitten by a show business bug when she was pregnant with me because uh, that's just something that's of interest to me. I love show business. I love working on how do you attract the public to buy a ticket. Well, certainly Hunt was one of the, one of the first sports entrepreneurs, as we would call them now. He had a notion of sports as an entertainment business that preceded most of his peers. You know, this was a guy who jumped to the AFL from a failed venture in miniature golf franchising. A bogey of a business plan wouldn't hurt Lamar Hunt, who at any point could have chosen to fall back on his family's oil fortune. What pumped through Lamar's veins was his love for the spectacle of sport. At age 26, he watched the NFL title game on television. Barking out the signals for the Baltimore Colts. There, in a black and white image, he saw a full color future in professional football, a growing game in a nation coming of age. The late 50s were a time of tremendous growth. There was more free time, there was more money, and America is moving out to the suburbs, and they are starting to enjoy the spoils of victory in two world wars. As all this is happening, the owners of the NFL weren't really interested in expanding. They had stuck together through a world war, through a challenge from the All-American Football Conference. Now that the pie was finally getting larger, they weren't really interested in giving somebody else some pieces of it. There's no excuse for expansion in the National Football League. We furnish football now for free through television. Expansion can only weaken the personnel. Lamar Hunt wanted an NFL franchise, but the owners of the NFL told him the NFL wasn't going to expand. The only way he was going to get into the league was to buy a franchise. And the only franchise that was even considered to be for sale were the Chicago Cardinals. And he goes down to talk to the owner of the Cardinals in Miami, Walter Wolfner and at one point, Wolfner boasted, look, Bud Adams down in Houston wants a team. There's people in Denver. There's people in Minneapolis. All these places want an NFL team. I don't need to deal with you. So Lamar Hunt shakes his hand, gets on a plane from Miami back to Dallas. And then the thought occurred to me, and it was literally like a light bulb going off. Hey, if all of these people, me included, want to have teams in a new league or in, in pro football, why wouldn't a new league succeed? I asked myself that question, and then I thought, well, it will. He gets some airline stationery and etches out the plans for this new league. This is how many teams, this is what the schedule's like, this is what the budget's going to be like. And then, typical of Lamar Hunt, he gets this great idea and tells nobody. And spends the next few months just very studiously, very carefully planning out how he's going to begin this new football league. A new league was the least of the NFL's problems. Congress wanted NFL Commissioner Burt Bell to explain why his league should not be prosecuted as a monopoly. So when Bell learned of Hunt's plans, he decided it was time everyone knew about the budding American Football League. 
and he asked if he could announce our league in these hearings. Now, he was doing it to get some heat off of himself. They were wanting to know, why isn't the NFL expanding? And so I said, well, sure, you go ahead and do that. And, and it got enormous attention because Burt Bell, in effect, announced that there was going to be a new league. Well, that was a lot better than having Lamar Hunt announce there was going to be a new league. The most exciting new development on the American sports scene came to life in 1960 with the birth of the American Football League. Teams at New York, Buffalo, Boston, Denver, Oakland, Los Angeles, Dallas, and Houston. I was in the locker room with Cleveland Browns when Paul Brown got up and said, there's a new league starting. Don't pay any attention to it. It's not going to succeed. It's bunch of sons of rich guys that, you know, don't know anything about football. Everyone in the National Football League took a, a pretty much negative attitude towards the new league. But underneath all of it, I thought it would give us a chance to get higher salaries because now we had competition for the NFL. Before that, the only place we could go was to Canada. <laughs> we had no leverage because I didn't want to go to Vancouver or somewhere. The NFL was paying attention. Its owners made Hunt and Houston's Bud Adams an offer. Abandon your plans for a new league, and you can each have an expansion franchise in the old one. When both Texans refused, the NFL changed its approach. In late August, Lamar is back in Dallas, and he gets a call on a Saturday afternoon from Associated Press reporter who wants to ask him uh, if he's got any response to the news out of Houston. Suddenly, the NFL, which had no interest whatsoever in... Uh, uh, in expansion, started a franchise in Dallas, Texas, which happens to be where Lamar Hunt has his team. They also stole one of the AFL's planned initial franchises. You can order your tickets now from the Minnesota Viking ticket office. Minnesota was to be a part of the AFL, and the NFL turned around and offered that same owner group an uh, expansion franchise in the NFL. I think at that instant, Lamar Hunt realized he was now in a fight. They were going to try to destroy the AFL before it could start. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. It seemed an almost impossible feat. We're going to go to the moon? Yeah, and I'm going to become the Dalai Lama. I mean... <laughs> we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It was communicated loud and clear. We can do, collectively, almost anything if we set our minds to it. This was an age of daring. America would shoot for the moon. The American Football League would aim for the NFL and do it with a former fighter pilot as its commissioner. Most people thought it probably should be a football figure. Of course, Joe Foss was a person of significant national prominence. He was one of the great heroes of World War II. As a Marine Corps pilot, knocked down 26 Japanese planes. He was a big, good-looking guy, been the governor of South Dakota. Questioning went along these lines. Have you ever played football? And I said, oh, yes, I played in college. Well, have you ever coached? And I said, my coaching was fighter pilots. If you lost, you got killed. 
but uh, I don't think you really want a coach. What you want is somebody that can open every door in the United States, and I have the confidence that I'm the guy that can do that. And Lamar said, say, are you interested in a commissioner's job? The commissioner of the American Football League, Mr. Joe Foss. Let's welcome Mr. Joe Foss. He had energy, he had charisma, he had drive. People would call the league offices and the secretary would say, oh, Commissioner Foss is en route. That meant he was flying his own plane somewhere. I traveled 250,000 miles that first year. I went to all the training camps. I think there were only a half a dozen guys that could do more push-ups than I could. Almost 500 push-ups. He would go around and make speeches to this chamber of commerce or this group of Shriners and talk up the American Football League. He was an outstanding representative for the American Football League in carrying our story to the American public. This is it. We'll let the ball players do the talking today. Merry Christmas to you all. The league fell like a gift from the sky into the lives of men like Paul Lowe. After the NFL's 49ers cut him, Lowe was employed in the mailroom at Baron Hilton's charge card company. In 1960, Hilton founded the AFL's Los Angeles franchise. Naturally, the credit card man named his team the Chargers. When Hilton heard of the potential talent in his mailroom, Lowe went from sorting letters to reading fan mail and became the number two all-time rusher of the league that wanted to make football fun. A lot of times I just think of, uh, you know, where I would be in life right now had it not been for the American Football League. Buster Ramsey and I've come to coach the Buffalo Bills. What do you say? Let's get started. Let's talk about humble beginnings. When we watched films, we would hang up a sheet, a white sheet, and we would sit on milk cartons and we would watch the films. Then we go out on the field and practice. In the AFL's early days, some teams were a bit threadbare. Denver couldn't afford to outfit its players. So practice gear was strictly BYO. The game uniforms they were given were UGLY. Mustard-colored jerseys with chocolate brown pants and those vertical striped socks that we wore. People would laugh at you. They would say, we feel sorry for you. But y'all have to wear stuff like that. You can't see the striped socks in this footage of the AFL's first game, but watch closely and you'll see Denver's Al Carmichael scoring the first touchdown in league history. 
At the start, the new league wasn't always easy on the eyes. Whether it was the uniforms, the game films, or stadiums like the dilapidated polo grounds. Home to coach Sammy Ball's New York Titans. The worst damn place I ever saw. It had been run down. They didn't clean it up or anything. Made me sick just to go out on the field. I've seen all the big cities I want to see, and it's all because of New York. I'm a country boy, and I like the country. If I want to walk out in the yard and take a leak, I'll walk out in the yard and take a leak. To make its grass greener, the AFL needed all the help it could get. I had to go to Dallas, Texas, July the 1st of 1960, and we had 129 guys there. And I noticed at the end of practice, there was a guy come out there every day, and he would water the field. Later, I found out it was Lamar Hunt. These players have got the choice. For the first time in, I guess, 10 years, they have a choice of where they can go play. Lamar Hunt's humility impressed everyone he met, sometimes in stark contrast to the NFL's approach. Pittsburgh drafted me in the NFL. Buddy Parker was a guy, him and Bobby Lane came to my house, drunk. Was on my front porch about 5.30, woke me up. So we gonna draft you this morning. They were so drunk, they were holding each other up in front of my house saying, the hell with that NFL. I don't think they knew my dad was a minister. He went out front. He said, well, you up. My dad was a big old black guy. He talked with a deep voice. You won't be going to Pittsburgh. I said, yes, sir. The Reverend Haynes was far more impressed when he met Lamar Hunt, and so Abner signed with the AFL's Dallas Texans. Signing players was just part of Hunt's effort to build a team that could battle the rest of the AFL on the field and that off it could compete with the NFL's Cowboys. I took a trip to Dallas, slept in a prince's palace. In the early 60s, Texas was known nationally as sort of a place for millionaires, entrepreneurs, big spending, big hats, big hair. A lot of people driving around with Cadillacs with big fins. Suddenly, in 1960, uh, there's two professional football teams appear out of nowhere in Dallas. And you pretty much picked. Injuries impaired the Cowboys' offense, but they still managed to hold their own against the toughest competition in the world. The Cowboys were from the lordly NFL, and they definitely didn't feel like they had to stoop to, to sell tickets. The AFL, they felt like people have to know who we are, so they did almost anything. Lamar Hunt, for being as unassuming as he was, loved show business. And he billed his team as the Zing team of pro football, Z-I-N-G. One of the highlights of the Texans games this past season was the best halftime in professional football. Featuring the fabulous Dallas Texans, and now meet Miss Dallas Texan of 1960, the beautiful Miss Kay Sutton. The Cowboys played some games on Friday nights, 
the Texans would often have a promotion that if you bring a ticket stub from Friday night's high school football game, you get into Sunday's Texans game for free to get the crowd away from the Cotton Bowl on Friday night and going to their high school game. And then that was the, that was the level at which the war was fought. Cowboys' first three years were bad. They're playing in the established league. They've got the name stars showing up to the Cotton Bowl, but they're losing week in and week out. The Texans have this young team, this exciting team, Abner Haynes, playing this dynamic brand of football. December, the American Football League race was a hectic and exciting one. We feel like December 1961 will find the American Football League championship resting in the hands of the Dallas Texans. Tom Landry admitted to me years later the Texans would have beaten us. It would have been a headline back then. It would have been huge news for the Cowboys to admit that the Texans were better. Down the road from Dallas, the AFL's Oilers were the only pro football team in Houston. From the start, Houstonians had as much pride in their team as they did in their city. Houston was under, at that time, the shadow of Dallas. They thought of Texas, well, Dallas is sort of the big city there. You said, wait a minute, Dallas is barely a Texas city. This was our attitude. Because Dallas is the only place in Texas that looks north and east for approval. We don't look for approval any damn person. We know we're big league, but the rest of the world doesn't know it, doesn't believe it. Well, when the first talk began that professional football, professional football, might be coming to Houston, uh, it spread like mildew in a dark basement. This was going to be a stamp. Houston is big league. It's now not just a big town, also, it's a big city. I don't think it's an overstatement to say it was the biggest news since uh, the end of World War II. In the boom town of Houston, pro football began with a bang. It came when Oilers owner Bud Adams doubled the offer that the NFL Rams made to college football's most explosive player. Cannon is the only guy I can think of before Namath that really had that kind of, uh, you know, marquee name. To Billy the Atomic Cannon, it is my privilege to present to you the Heisman Trophy for 1959. Signing Billy Cannon was part of the Oiler owner's master plan, to win points with his fans by scoring them on the field. Bud Adams had the idea that uh, in the early days, good defensive backs and good pass coverage would not be in existence. So they did build their team around offense. Billy Cannon out of the backfield, Charlie Hennigan, you want a good uh, statement about Charlie Hennigan, call, call Willie Brown. Willie is in the Hall of Fame, as good as defensive back that ever lived, and he had to cover Hennigan in practice, couldn't cover him. They traded him, actually, to Denver. So now we go and we're playing Denver, and Charlie Hennigan, it's the last game of the season, he needs nine catches to break the record of catches in a season. And Willie Brown has covered him. We had eight passes the first half. Charlie Hennigan, Landers receiver here, caught 101 passes, a pro football record. 
Directing the Oilers' offense was George Blanda, a backup quarterback and place kicker discarded by George Hallas and the NFL's Bears. Out of the game in 1959, grateful for a new football life in the AFL. There were a lot of players that came from the NFL that wanted to show the NFL that they made mistakes. And George was one of those guys. You know, sometimes we think, you know, we get carried away with, he wanted to show George Hallis. Well, a lot of people want to show people, but they don't have what it takes to do it. George had what it took to do it. We were back deep in our own territory, and I could just feel on this particular down that they were going to bring in the linebackers and maybe even a safety. So uh, I called full protection, and we isolated Billy Cannon on their free safety. He swung out of the backfield, and they weren't going to catch him. Houston's offense carried it to the AFL's first two titles. Gus Grissom is teeing up the ball as the honorary referee, George Blander, shakes his hand. One of our great astronauts who is stationed here in our space center in Houston. The city that was home to the U.S. space program was also the launch pad for the AFL's first great air show. To its big-time team, Houston had an undying devotion, come hell or high water to the Gulf Coast. Playing Oakland in 1961, and a hurricane was fixing to come in was Hurricane Carla, if I remember right. Did quite a bit of damage around here, but we had a full stadium that night. I remember Charlie told us, as a matter of fact, uh, and that story is true, that if you had tickets to an Oilers game, never mind a hurricane is coming ashore, the game is going to be played, and damn right, we'll be there. The Weather Bureau here has the radar, that 250-mile range radar, is probing out in the Gulf. Such pictures are now very common. But in those days, to see this monster, I said to myself what you would have said to yourself. Television is pictures. This is a picture. Nobody's ever seen this on television. There is the eye of the hurricane right there. You can see it very clearly on the radar, a beautiful picture. Television weather coverage changed that weekend. Every day it became clearer. America's newest force of nature was television. It was an engine for information, and if harnessed correctly, a machine to make money. That lesson Lamar Hunt learned from the sport that at the time dwarfed even the National Football League. Lamar Hunt had been spending much of 1958 trying to decide, does he want to invest in baseball? Does he want to invest in football? And he actually went to a, a meeting that Branch Rickey held. And one of Rickey's concepts, which he'd gotten from Bill Veck, was the idea of sharing television revenue. Because Bill Veck had made a big stink about that, saying that it was unfair that the Yankees should get all this money for the broadcasts in New York when the Cleveland Indians, who Veck owned, were an equal partner in those games and should share equally in the revenues the Yankees were enjoying. He was branded a socialist for even making the suggestion. But Lamar Hunt understood in a way that not many people did at the time, that this was not an economic question. It was a competition question for franchises in 
smaller cities to compete with the New Yorks and Los Angeleses, you had to equalize the television revenue enjoyed by those teams. And so one of Lamar Hunt's main points was each team shares equally in a league-wide network package. First, the AFL needed a network. Just months before the league's 1960 debut, it found one in ABC. The deal was negotiated by New York Titans owner Harry Wismer, a former broadcaster who knew how to put on a good show. Good evening, everyone. This is Harry Wismer inviting you to join me on the 50-yard line of the nation's professional gridiron. As we he was a famous radio announcer out of the 40s and 50s and an unabashed promoter, you know, a tub-thumping kind of guy. Nothing wrong with that. He was somebody who would, at the Waldorf Astoria, be milling around the lobby and then sneak off to a payphone to call the front desk at the hotel and ask to have Harry Wismer paged. And someone would assume that something important is going on with Harry Wismer again. Who's ever heard of a, uh, of a Titan, number one? And of course, Wismer knew what it was all about. The Titans are bigger than Giants. And he wanted something that was perceived as being bigger than the New York Giants. Well, you know, I hate to disillusion him, but uh, there's nothing bigger than the New York Giants were back in those days. The Giants would be in Yankee Stadium, and we'd be at the Polo Grounds, and a lot of people would come over and park their car in the parking lot at the Polo Grounds, and then they would take the subway back over to Yankee Stadium. So the parking lot crowds were a lot bigger than the stadium crowds. I was able to go up and shake hands with everyone that was there and congratulate them on coming to the game. About half of them said, no, I'm here on a comp. And I said, well, just to get you started, bring a paying customer next time. Mr. Wismer really thought we were going to have an average crowd of 40, 50,000 people. And when that didn't happen, he was on such a short budget that he just couldn't function. Here's Frank Gifford, all-pro halfback. Hey, Joe, are you still using that greasy kid stuff on your hair? What else? Vitalis. The Giants were doing television commercials. That's it. Rub it in good. And we were lucky if we could get a dry, clean towel. And then try Vitalis. So Harry tried a novel technique to refinance the team. He married the widow of a former Newark hoodlum named Longy's Wilman. Longy had gone water skiing in the Passaic River with lead skis and, of course, died. <clears throat> and it was assumed that Mrs. Wilman had quite a stash of Longy's money. Now, it turned out Mrs. Wismer, or Mrs. Wilman Wismer, didn't really have a stash of money, but we were kind of hopeful, actually. That's how desperate we were. We didn't care where the money came from. <laughs> All right, we had a great game here this afternoon, folks. It was hard playing football, the kind that you came to see. We hope that you enjoyed it, and it was a pleasure refereeing a game where people wanted to see a good football game played under the ideal conditions that we play under in the American Football League. Thank you. I seem to maybe be the only one in my group of peers that was talking the league up. They were hearing and reading things about uh, how it was a second-rate league, how players who played in it were second-rate as well. I actually almost felt that it was mine in my neighborhood because nobody else was interested in it.
I'm not sure if my father even listened or watched the Patriots games and his own daughter was working for them. Everybody I knew knew they were a football team. I'm sure they couldn't name two or three of the players. And so uh... We had here a league who had players, Billy Cannon and some others who were known, but most of them were not known. We had to somehow get people caring whether they watched the games or not. I mean, everybody cared if the Giants were playing the Bears. We spent a lot of time trying to personalize some of these players. First of all, what they looked like, and secondly, what kind of people they were. And so we started weaving interviews and things like that in. Hi, Fred, congratulations. Fred's the tight end for the Dallas Texans. It's also why we started supering their names. We were able with the AFL, because it was brand new, to do some things that we probably couldn't have done if we had had the NFL at that time. Sound. Nobody ever heard the sound of a punt or a contact of lines and things. So we developed these mics so that you could pick that all up. They have only nine seconds. The American Football League increasingly was becoming a must-see TV, particularly for those who were not dead in the world football fans. It was uh, seen as better entertainment. ABC's bells and whistles captured the spectacle of the AFL. The network was the perfect partner for the innovative league which brought the two-point conversion to pro football, along with names on the backs of jerseys. If I had a couple of guys reference to me that, you know, Marty, you're really a big name in pro football. You know that, don't you? And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, look at your name. It's 14 letters. That's a big name in pro football. It did pose some issues for our equipment staff. So the AFL allowed these kinds of things, clearly aware that they were trying to juice up the presentation. There was definitely a kind of a ragtag, Mickey Rooney, let's put on a show in the backyard kind of quality to it. Halftime at Patriots Games is a showcase for talent in the greater Boston area. This is the famous Boston Latin School Band. These young ladies are from Roslindale High. It's a little cool out there, even for synthetic grass skirts, but the fans love it. We had to make it fun. We had to make the experience good. I mean, we're, we're in Oakland fighting for our lives against the 49ers, you know, and we have to, you know, it has to be more fun to go to a Raider game. Denver was home to unintentional comedy. The Broncos' hosiery was the cruelest joke of all. If they were ever going to have the last laugh, the Broncos would need to hold a roast for their funny socks. They decided to have a big night. They took and they piled up all the old uniforms, including the socks. These two guys came out onto the field with torches, and they circled the field in front of the fans and dropped the torches into the pile of the old uniforms, and uh, that was the end of them. Denver fans were overjoyed to see their Broncos in new uniforms. Go, 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 happy from your head right down to your feet. Costume changes were common in this backyard show of a football league. Before they were the silver and black, the Raiders spent three seasons as the black and gold. Life can be a beautiful thing. Bills founder Ralph Wilson once owned part of the NFL's Lions. When he came to Buffalo, so did Detroit's silver and blue. Two years later, the Bills donned red, white, and blue. And every Sunday, their fans partied like it was the 4th of July. 
at War Memorial Stadium, there were no rules. There were no regulations. People would bring grills in the aisles and just pass kegs of beer, tapping it. It was a party. It was a festival. You don't need to run. AFL might as well have stood for Always Fun League. You don't need to run. No one knew what they might see next. We're playing the Boston Patriots in Boston at Boston Field. All the fans, they thought the game was over. So they all came down on the field in that corner of the end zone, and we got time left for one play. We call the slant pass to Chris Burford. Burford is wide open, but suddenly something hits the ball, and it flies out of the end zone, incomplete, we lose the ball game. Cotton Davidson, after the game, he comes over to me, very dejected, he said, Coach, a guy in a khaki jacket knocked that ball down. We get the films the next day, and sure enough, when the ball was snapped, a guy bounced across like a ballet dancer, reached up, took the ball, and that was it. I said, geez, I wish we could have found out who that was. That was the best defensive play we saw all year long in the American Football League. Hank Stram got his first head coaching opportunity in the AFL with the Dallas Texans in 1960. Before that, Stram had been an assistant coach in college football, where he'd learned from the legends. Spring practice for the Crimson Tide of Alabama, and everything... Bear Bryant coached in the tower, and a lot of coaches in that era said, well, I'm going to get on a tower because Bear does it. So Hank Stram coached from a tower in practices, Texan practices. Well, he liked it so much. The second year, 1961, he said, let's take that tower down to the Cotton Bowl, and I'm going to coach there this weekend. So the people who bought the good seats can't see the game. They're yelling at him and throwing stuff. He coached the game from the tower, and after one game, I think Lamar and some of the people told him, you just can't do that. Hank got things in his head, and he was determined to see them through. Hank Stram was the best quarterback coach that I ever had. He was my coach at Purdue for a couple of years, and he had helped develop my skills. Getting ready for the 62 season, Lenny had been in the National Football League for five years and threw like 24 passes. And he was very disappointed and very disgruntled about the fact that he wasn't playing. So I told him at that time, I said, Lenny, if I give anything, if I could get you, so if you have a chance, if any way you can get away from where you are, let me know and we'll bring you to Dallas. I say, well, sure enough, in the spring of the year, he calls me and he said, Coach Brown said that he would put me on waivers and that I would be available for you. And i never forget that I talked to Paul Brown and Coach Brown said, now, Hank, he said, I want to tell you something. I know you're very loyal and I know you have a strong feeling for Leonard Dawson, but that kid has lost it. And he said, if you insist on keeping him, you're going to lose your job. Reunited with his college mentor, Len Dawson, spent 1962 matriculating towards stardom. Each of the winners will receive an S55 Mercury convertible presented by Lincoln Mercury. The first presentation will be to Lenny Dawson, Player of the Year. As the season went on, we started dominating people. We had Abner Haynes in the backfield who was having a phenomenal year. And all of a sudden we're thinking, hey, we could be the team to win it all this year. 
On the field, Lamar Hunt's team was winning. Off of it, his league was still struggling to compete with the NFL, especially in two-team towns like Dallas and New York. Chargers owner Baron Hilton conceded Los Angeles to the NFL's Rams, moving south to San Diego in 1961. That same year, the Oakland Raiders were close to abandoning the Bay Area. They were thinking of either sending us to Seattle or New Orleans, and our owners were going to back up because they needed money. And Wayne Valley had told Ralph Wilson, I think we're going to have to shut it down. And Ralph, to his credit, realized we can't go on with seven teams. You can't have a pro football league with seven teams. Wilson kept the Raiders alive by loaning them $400,000. Oakland general partner Wayne Valley joked that the AFL owners had become a foolish club. Everyone was losing money, some more visibly than others. H.L. Hunt, Lamar Hunt's father, was asked. We understand your son's football franchise lost a million dollars this year. And H.L. Hunt said, well, at, at that rate, he can only go another 100 years. He can last 100 years. I guess he's only got 123 years left. I've heard many different numbers, and all of them are overly flattering numbers, by the way. Not every owner was able to hold out for 100 years. By 1962, New York's polo grounds had become a graveyard, where Titans owner Harry Wismer was buried in debt. I remember it was a November day, very sunny at the polo grounds. We were practicing, and suddenly there was a, a kind of an emptiness, a hollowness. And the coaches had surreptitiously slithered off the field. And somebody said, paychecks. I'll bet their paychecks up in the locker room. We realized that the coaches had gotten theirs, and they had a two or three subway stop head start on us, headed to the one bank, Irving Trust, and the one branch, 39th Street, <laughs> And the one teller who was authorized to cash a Titan paycheck, he had a window and he had the total in front of him. And every time somebody cashed a check and he gave him money, he subtracted that. And when he got to zero, he closed the window. You know, we couldn't cash a check or run a bill at Mr. Leterio's grocery store across from the apartment. I mean, Mr. Leterio is a fine Italian gentleman. At one time or another, he'd probably taken care of everybody in the neighborhood. But he just apologized. He said, I, I read about your husband's football team, and I can't let you have this sausage. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Three years earlier, Harry Wismer had been a founding member of the Foolish Club, sharing a common dream with Bud Adams and Lamar Hunt. By the end of the 62 season, his titans were bankrupt. The league needed a success story in New York. So Wismer's former partners put his franchise up for sale. Whoever owned it next would have to put on a better show than Wismer ever did. Even though teams were losing a million dollars or more a year, and the people who were most closely involved were frequently discouraged, they understood that they really had something here. The league was within the reach of finally being successful. The first debate, I was driving from Orlando down to Miami. And so I heard it on radio, and I got to my radio station, and I said, boy, that was really close. And Nixon was bright, Kennedy was bright, they agreed on a lot of things. They ain't going to change the numbers at all. And they were, everyone there was saying, you didn't see it? I said, no. Kennedy killed him. 
if you had sat with a transcript of that debate, Nixon won. But Kennedy looked young and vigorous, and Nixon looked old and tired. It was another part of American life that was transformed by television. Television could turn perception into reality and back again. United gives to Amici, the In 1958, it transformed the NFL into a rising power among American sports. Four years later, on December 23, 1962, the Houston Oilers and Dallas Texans would play in the AFL's third title game, live on ABC. This was the day the new league would take its first step into the American spotlight. two or three interceptions in the first half and we got down 17 to nothing very, very quickly. It's a fake to McClinton. Boston throwing to Haynes. He's the Texans looked like they would cruise to their first championship. But in blew that famous Houston weather and with it, the winds of change. In the second half, the Oilers roared back to tie the game at 17. Like the NFL four years earlier, the AFL was producing a sudden death drama on live television. This was theater, and thanks to ABC's emphasis on sound, the lead roles would have speaking parts. Let's go down to Jack at the 50-yard line. Right here in the playing field, and very shortly we're going to have the toss of the coin as the overtime period will come about. Stram decided having 40-mile-an-hour winds at Dallas's back was more important than getting the ball first. So he told Abner Haynes to choose the wind if Dallas won the toss. While the coin's in there, and call it loudly now. Yeah. Hits. Hits! Now Dallas won. You have your choice, of course, receiving or kicking. We will kick to the clock. They're going to kick yeah. through the clock. Right. Haynes misspoke. He thought he was taking the wind, but the words, we'll kick, meant Dallas had made its choice and would kick off. Houston then chose which end zone to defend. The Oilers would begin overtime with the wind and the ball. It was a dramatic twist a nation of viewers got to see and hear. One of the Dallas players, what it was all about, and he simply said Abner Haynes had made a mistake. Stram was, you know, on the sideline talking to, to Haynes in a very um, consoling way. Obviously, he knew he'd made a huge mistake. It was a great insight into a player coach relationship in, in such a critical game, in such a critical situation. Neither team scored in the first overtime. In the second, the team switched sides and Dallas finally had the wind at its back. Dawson would hold for rookie Tommy Brooker, who had a chance to kick Dallas to a championship. I said, Tommy, just keep your head down, keep it still, and pump it through there, baby. He said, don't worry about it, coach. I'll kick that sucker right through there like it had eyes. Kick is up, the kick is good, Dallas is the champion, Dallas 
wins it on a 24-yard field goal by Tommy Booker. The coach hangs them, carried on the field, and this There's is no way that you can come away from it and not say, this was one of the greatest football games ever played. All of that, the magic carpet of television brought right into your living room. One of the greatest football games I've ever seen. Dallas's victory ended Houston's two-year run as champions. It also came on a day in which weather was particularly bad up in the Northeast. There were a lot of people watching the game on TV. And congratulations. Thank you very much, Jack. And it was an excellently played game. It was a dramatic game. It was the AFL's real coming-of-age party. And uh, we're just as proud as can we that we can win the championship and bring it back to Dallas, Texas. I thought, geez, this is it. The Cowboys are going to be leaving. Uh, they'll have to leave Dallas now because we are the champions. But that was the case. The case was that Lamar Hunt wanted the league to succeed. Lamar Hunt realized, even though he wanted to stay in Dallas, he could not be truly successful in a town that was divided. The Cowboys could wait it out longer because the NFL was going to be around. The NFL was clearly there to stay. The AFL was much more of a touch-and-go proposition. What he needed to do was create the perception and also the reality that the league was becoming more successful. And the only way to do that was to move his franchise. For Hank Stram to win the championship in 1962 and then move, he said he just, he just cried his eyes out. Lamar sat him down and said, look, we are not it this way. Broke his heart, too. In the years to come, the AFL would need more than a few successful teams. It would need a league of strong franchises. It would need palatial new homes and compelling new faces. But before any of that could happen, Lamar Hunt would have to put the league before his team for Hunt, for his Kansas City Chiefs, for the AFL, for everyone. History was about to crack wide open. Shram talked about the war in the 60s. He wasn't referring to Vietnam. He was talking about the NFL and the AFL. And that was the war that these men were fighting. And they were going to succeed at all costs. Get tighter on them. They're giving up too damn much. Shut them down and play football. War against the NFL to get the players. The 1967 AFL championship belonged to Oakland. They beat Houston in this game for the crowd. When we draft or we trade for football players, uh, we reserve the right to play them where they can make the greatest contribution to this organization.
The major reason behind Denver's vault into second place in the rushing department was the acquisition of powerful fullback Cookie Gilchrist from the Buffalo Bills. We went out to get a taxi. Taxes were lined up out in front of the hotel. And Cookie Gilchrist, one of our players, said, hey, uh, we want a taxi. And the guy says, uh, we got to call y'all a color cab. Hey, I don't care what color the cab is. I just want a taxi. Why can't we ride in one of these? So we decided we're going to go into that next club. We get ready to go in. This little guy standing there pulls out a gun. You are not coming in here. You are not coming in here. In the South and Southwest, desegregation was far from what the law um, required it to be. You know, it was unheard of for, for Black to be a, a, a weak safety or middle linebacker or a quarterback. And this was like standard kind of talk. I mean, people believed this shit about whites and blacks. Now, there's no magic formula to it other than maybe hard work and having a horses. I'm trying to do this thing uh, in terms of quarterback, center, and the studs up front. Everything that Paul Brown did 95% of that is what we do today. From scouting players, to breaking down film, to game planning, to on the field teaching, coaching, drills, and so forth. 50 years later, everybody's still basically doing the same thing. To me, that's the father of professional football. If it weren't for the AFL, what opportunities would I have had to coach? Every time I saw Lamar Hunt, I thanked him. Our philosophy, move in the pocket, make sure... The innovation offensively was predominantly in the AFL. Men in motion, shifting complex formations, those things were not common in the National Football League at the time. Pump it in there, baby! Just keep matriculating the ball down the field, boys! I mean, you talk about dressing up to coach a football game. His sartorial splendor was, was evident every Sunday, and he always took it to the hilt. They were a team that projected the image that Hank Stram wanted to project, and it was a far different image than the image of Al Davis and later John Madden and the Oakland Raiders. And so that rivalry, in many ways, the defining rivalry of the 10 years of the AFL came out of those terrific contrasts. A lot of players didn't like each other. I mean, that get right down to it. You know, there was that, that was back in the days when you could really, I mean, God, you can blast people out there. I mean, they'd just clothesline you. They'd hit you out of bounds. They'd do all that kind of stuff. It's too bad the game's not like that anymore. Jack Kemp was very tough. He once broke his hand, and while the hand was healing, he had the doctor form it around a football so that when it healed, he would be, still be able to hold the ball and throw it. When we left the Yale Bowl, the traffic was horrendous. We first thought it was because of all the people going back to New York after the football game. We found out that it was really because of Woodstock. The 60s will be described as a decade in which football became the number one sport in America. The AFL made it automatic hit on television. The most thrilling first play ever made by any new team anywhere. He took the opening kickoff and he went 100 yards. And we went nuts. The Buffalo Bills select their first choice, halfback O.J. Simpson, the University of Southern California. Nobody could run football like O.J. Like, like an instrument, got to tune it just right, a little at a time. 
Namath has not been bashful this week, and he has said that the Jets are going to win. He doesn't even predict it. He says, we're going to win the game. I guarantee it. They're beating the best that the NFL has to offer out here today. The AFL finally earns the respect it has desired. And the irony is it earns that respect at the moment it ceases to exist. It was time for some men to stand up and be counted. I think that's what we did.